Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to Capitalize Your Fridays. My name is Michael Williams. I'm the founder and president of Altius Financial, and I'm joined by my co-host, Taylor, McG- Taylor Dennis. I'm going to have to get used to that one. Taylor Dennis, she is our wealth design specialist, and she is keeping me on track with this podcast. Uh, thank you so much for that, Taylor. Definitely. Glad to keep them going. Who's going to be harder to remember what your last name is, me or you? Oh, that's a tough one. <laughs> I think I'm getting used to it. Yeah. So we haven't talked uh, in a while about just, you know, the markets and the economy and stuff like that. So that was the main topic that I thought we'd we'd kind of dive into today. But first, I think we probably need to do our little uh, disclaimer, right? Yeah. So just a quick reminder, these discussions are meant to be more just a fun educational discussion. It's not meant to be direct advice to any of our listeners. If you do have questions about your specific financial planning or investment strategy, definitely reach out to your financial team. If you don't yet have a financial team, reach out to us. We are, we'd love to have some great clients and yeah. So contact information, Taylor at Altius Financial or Michael at AltiusFinancial.com. Or if you just want additional resources, www.altiusfinancial.com. So I mentioned that we haven't talked about the markets and, and the economy in a while. And there's lots of discussion about the tax code changing. Here we are well into the third quarter. Here we are in October. And, and that always spurs us to talk more about taxes and year-end planning. And we'll, we'll definitely talk some about the tax code. But there's a list of topics that I wanted to just touch on that are impacting the market right now. And I say the market, I always want to correct myself because there's multiple markets. There's no one colossal stock market or investment market. There's lots of different kinds of markets. But we we do have lots of indexes that we look at and say, how's the market doing? But what's affecting things right now? Well, there's this debate, ongoing debate about deflation versus inflation. There's been a lot of talk about what's happening in China, less so from a tariff and, and trade war right now, more of what's going on internally in China and how that's affecting their stock market, their economy, which clearly they're a large part of the global economy and that's affecting things. Obviously, we've had this pandemic and the COVID, the ripple effects from COVID. How are those playing out right now? As I mentioned, the taxes and, and the debt ceiling. I've said for years that's going to be an ongoing thing for all investors to have to contemplate is how does Congress deal with the ongoing debts that we've created in this country and whether we'll continue to borrow more. So those are a few things I thought we'd just touch on today. Yeah. Well, so you said there's a debate between deflation and inflation. I know what deflation is. I know what inflation is. I don't understand where the debate is. It seems like everything's just getting more expensive. Rent's going up. Gas is going up. Groceries are going up. What? Tell me where I can get a discount. Where's my deflation? <laughs> well, it's interesting. Our Federal Reserve has targeted 2% inflation for a long time. They used to say you know, that they wanted a dual mandate of monetary stability, having the dollar continue to have value, and full employment. That was, that was the job of the central bank. The Federal Reserve is supposed to make sure that we had a, a stable dollar and make sure that as many people who wanted to work could find employment. The original mandate was to protect the dollar, to say we have sound banking. And then they added, no, we want to do that with, with full employment. And now they have all, all kinds of other mandates, which we don't have time to go in through today. But 2% per year inflation means you are actually losing value each year of 2%. Lately, especially partly because of COVID or the spring back from COVID, we've had prices going up. Rising prices aren't 
necessarily inflation, and decreasing prices aren't necessarily deflation. You can think of it that way, but they aren't necessarily the cause of them. But you're asking, where's the discounts? <laughs> yeah. where, where are things going down in prices? Is that what you mean? Yeah. Well, or or maybe elaborate a bit on that. I think most of my business education, we were taught inflation is a price increase. Deflation is a price decrease. That was pretty much, obviously, but think of it this way. more depth on that. But. Think of it this way. I mean, most people, most economists and central bankers really fear deflation a lot. Uh, and you might say, well, wait, well, I'm, I'm okay with prices going down. But what if your, the price of your wage goes down? The price you can charge me as your employer goes down. Are you okay with that? No. If we have that kind of deflation? <laughs> so people always yeah. have to look at economic transactions are always at least two-sided that way. And, and so if people who are productive have to lower their prices, meaning across the board, if, if you have businesses that are always having to lower their prices and wage earners who are always having to lower their prices, that can be very destructive. That's maybe the bad kind of deflation. The good kind is the kind you're talking about where we have prices that are going down and quality going up. And that's, as you've heard me before, I don't want to you know, stop me if I get on too much of a rant, but that's generally what happens in a free economy. In a capitalist economy where you have people making free voluntary exchanges, you do have, because of that competition, you have prices going down and quality and service and everything else going up. That's what should be happening. That's the good kind of deflation that we want. And we've had some of that. In fact, we have some major deflationary force, good deflationary forces in our economy for a while. You know, whenever you have innovation, technology has, has made lots of things less expensive. So the impact of having better and better technology, now that, again, that may not be so great for the people that are, that are having to uh, find other jobs yeah. or reduce what they can earn in the marketplace. But deflation can be really good. And as I said, you, you have technology and certainly in biotechnology, that's causing some costs across the board. Artificial intelligence, you're, you're seeing some costs to go down quite a bit. And that's a good thing. But we've had massive increases in prices, especially if you're someone who drives a car or uses fuel. Food costs are going up. So we're having this debate amongst economists about what's going to be the ongoing long-term outlook. And the Federal Reserve is saying that the inflation, the, the price increases that we're seeing are just, they're transitory. They're temporary. They're transition. Yeah. yeah, they're happening because we just, we saw really big drops in prices and, and economic activity because of the, the shutdowns, which were due to the pandemic. Now we're springing back out of that and having much more activity and therefore Prices are catching up and, and springing forward, but those are just kind of temporary. I'm someone who's been more concerned about inflation for a long time. In fact, I think we've had asset price inflation in the stock market, in real estate. You know, anyone who owns real estate knows that likely the price on their house has been increasing for years. And they kind of go, this is great. You know, I'm glad I could sell my house for a lot more than I bought it for. Why is it happening? Well, is it happening because we've created too much money? And that's partly the, the issue is if you, and that's connected back to that, that debt ceiling that we'll get back to later. If you have money that's created out of thin air, then it's going to go somewhere and, and that allows people to bid prices up faster. I don't know if I'm answering your question, but that's the debate between do we have a deflationary economy and do we have inflation? I think we've had some of both. And again, you, know, you have this innovative part of our economy with technology bringing prices down in lots of areas but also lots of money printing that's gone on. And that actually is increasing bidding, the bidding ability. Uh, and so far, we have more inflation. It's, it's a lot higher than it has been for really the last 10 or 15 years. 
And the question, again, is, is it going to continue? I think that it's more permanent than the Federal Reserve seems to think. But I can readily acknowledge that we have lots of things that are maybe going to keep costs lower. You think that inflation is more permanent or you think stable pricing is? Well, I don't think we're going to have stable pricing across the board. And that's because we have too much intervention. Whenever you have intervention between those voluntary forces, when you have two people or two companies or lots of trades that are happening on a voluntary basis, that reflects values, you know, current values right now. Here's what we think the, what your service is worth. Here's what we think this technology or what this car is worth. But whenever you have intervention, and by that I mean government force, government saying, no, you can't, you can't charge that much for gas or you can't charge that much for healthcare services. Well, that causes distortion, and that is going to end up having some kind of impact in the, in the price chain somewhere else. And so you don't get the kind of price stability that you really should have when you have that kind of intervention. But whether we see the prices generally go up, as in an inflationary environment, or generally go down, that's a battle right now in terms of the debate. And I would, to answer your question, I'm more on the side that I worry about inflation, more inflation because of all the debt that we've created. Because... Whenever you have money that just gets created without new services or new products, new goods being produced or more value being produced for that money, then you're going to have bidding that goes up and that means prices. Well, so talking about printing money, before we started this, I said, I'm confused about the debt ceiling. And I think you were thinking, oh, that's interesting. She doesn't understand the debt ceiling. And then I clarified and said, no, 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 I'm confused about why do they call it a debt ceiling? Because clearly there's no ceiling. My whole <laughs> life, all they ever do is say, oh, we're, this is the debt ceiling. We're going to bump it up a little bit. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that? And what is that going to do to our long-term economy if we are just perpetually a society that continues to take on debt? Is there going to become a point in time where it's not even worth having dollars because now we're in Zimbabwe and our dollars are so deeply. Um, well, you've seen me so, in my example, right? Where, yeah. where I pull out a $100 bill, a US $100 bill, and pull out a $100 trillion bill from Zimbabwe. And then, and then sometimes I even pull out a gold coin to, to contrast the value of those things. I'm not predicting that we're going to turn into Zimbabwe anytime soon, but I do think we have the risk of higher, higher inflation, whether that spirals into a hyperinflation, you know, kind of exponential growth on prices that's a really disastrous thing. I'm not necessarily predicting that anytime soon, but I do think we're on the wrong track. And as you said, you know, there's no real debt ceiling. It's like a temporary thing that they don't have the discipline. Our Congress does not have the discipline to tell the American people, no, we have to make choices. You know, economics is the art of making choices, trade-offs. And politicians, when they can print money, don't have to make choices. They can promise things to everyone and, and continue to say, yeah, we can do this, we can do that. And we will just create the money to pay for it. But that, all that means is you're creating lots of debt on future generations to pay it back, or you end up defaulting. And that's what's interesting is that this time, and I don't know if it's really that much more, but whenever you have the debate in Congress and the headlines out there about, oh, is the U.S. going to default on its debt? They're not going to raise the debt ceiling, which means they're going to default. You know, there's all this uh, concern. I think that's a much real or much more real possibility. I know I've talked to clients and other people before who think, how could you advocate for that? Because that would be, you know, if, if the U.S. defaulted on its debts, even temporarily, that would cause a lot of turmoil in the economy and certainly the financial markets. And you and I would be on the phone every day trying to calm people down and say, you know, th this is why this is happening. And, and we'd try to explain what was going to happen from there. But Well, what would that immediately do, though? If we, because... 
it's kind of all artificial anyways. It's we can't pay our debt, so we're going to take on more debt, but we still can't pay our debt. So how would us accepting that, hey, we can't pay our debt, we need to figure out how to pay this back and making steps. Like we tell clients all the time, hey, if you can't pay this off, we need to make a we need to reevaluate your spending so that you can pay this off. How would it be bad if the government sat back and actually did what we tell clients to do all the time? Well, that means they would have to start making choices. And ultimately, that means that they would have to they would have to decrease the size and scope of our government because they can't they couldn't afford it all. And when you cut back on government spending, that means somebody's going to be impacted by it. You know, it's not just this amorphous thing called the government that's spending. There are people who get paid when the government's spending money. There are companies who get paid. Now, whether those are the most productive people in companies, that's the question. You know, that's, that's a political argument. But if you did say, no, you can't, like we tell people, do you have a money printing machine in the basement? Do you, you know, can you actually print money? They would call that counterfeit. There are economists who say, no, that's, that analogy is not right. A government's not like a household or a business. It, it, can, it, it operates differently. And there's some truth in that. It does operate differently. It's not a productive entity, first of all. It doesn't really produce anything. You know, government cannot produce anything. It has to buy things. You know, it has to buy things from soldiers or it has to buy things from, from uh, judges and, and politicians and, and all the contractors who, who do building for the government. Or it has to pay people to administer the Social Security Administration. You know, it has to, it's a transfer service. But they would have to quit making so many promises in terms of how they spend money. And that would cause a lot of turmoil in the markets. We would likely see downturn in the stock market, at least temporarily, and we would likely see lots of turmoil in the bond markets. It depends on whether they said, okay, we're not going to raise the debt ceiling and we have to default on some of our debts. And now here's a better repayment system that we're going to make. And we're going to, you know, we're going to have a, a much more rational way or fiscally responsible way of, of managing the taxes and the spending that the government has to balance out. I don't know if that answers your question. Well, so Essentially, it would be hard on individuals because people would immediately lose jobs and we would see it in the financial markets. Yeah, my view is that it is, you're right to use the analogy. Again, there are economists who don't agree with this, but I think that is right to say it's a principle, like a household or a business that says, okay, you only have so much in the way of resources and you have to live within that. Um, So there would be pain initially, just like when we tell someone you can't afford to spend like you're spending right now. That's you're going to feel pain. And it, we use this analogy all the time, you know, how people, whether they're exercising or eating correctly or doing other good virtuous habits in their life. Yeah. Well, if you're changing and you're saying, no, I'm going to I'm actually going to cut back on my alcohol consumption or I'm going to I'm going to actually start working out more. That is a painful process. Yeah, there's no good, easy. there's no way of getting around that. So would there would be pain. The question is, would we as a society be better off for enduring some of that pain for a much more virtuous cycle in terms of our long-term health of our economy. And I think we would be. Again, they're not necessarily asking me on this, so I don't predict that that's going to change anytime soon. But it'll either have to change by voluntary actions on the part of our legislators and our society, or we'll be forced into it at some point, in my view. When we get to that point where it's where we literally have to default on things, that you know, the pain will be that much more if, if it's not a voluntary thing on our part. 
you know, that is related to the deflation inflation thing. And, and again, the debt ceiling is something that happened a long time ago where certain legislators were saying, wait, we can't afford to do this. Yeah. So they agreed. Well, we're going to do it, but we'll, we'll make a little target out there that says, okay, we're going to agree. We won't go beyond that. And if we go beyond that, it has to be really, really serious discussion. Yeah. So it's like your credit card spending one. Exactly. So like, oh, you can't spend over this. Exactly. The other alternative w- would be to have, and people have advocated for a, a constitutional amendment, you know, a budget, a balanced budget amendment. You're going to break the Constitution if you don't actually balance the tax revenue with the spending that you have. And most states have to operate that way. They can't really print money. They can borrow money if they, if they have the credit, but they can't print money. And so they have to operate that way in the first place. This is related to the wider worldwide economic situation because the U.S. is by far not the only debtor nation. In fact, China used to be much more responsible than we are, but they're, they're now borrowing a lot. They've realized that you can front load economic activity. You can make things look a lot better if you're borrowing. You, know, yeah. uh, you can live a better lifestyle if you're borrowing. I was going to say, has that correlated to their growth as a nation? Because I feel people used to think of China as, and this is probably way back, but it used to be, oh, China, there's not really much there, and it's just China, and now it's it kind of transitioned into a, okay, this is a place that's creating things, and you're, you've got all these goods and supplies that are coming out of this country, and now it's kind of become its own market epicenter type of yeah, and space. The, 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 so it, has their it, debt paralleled their... It has to some degree, but that's not the cause of okay. them becoming a worldwide economic powerhouse. And again, this is my philosophy, and I think I can prove it. The number one correlation to having a, an economy that thrives well, that is a powerhouse, is productive, is economic freedom, economic and political freedom. And that's what's amazing is China and many other countries that were formerly state-run, top-down, very authoritarian, opened up their economy. And we see this in Eastern Europe. They were former Soviet bloc states, even Russia itself. You know, after the Soviet Union dissolved, it became more of a market-based economy. And if you have that kind of freedom, if you open it up a little bit, you're going to see an impact. The degree to which you actually have a free economy is the degree to which you have innovation, productivity, and economic activity. And that's what happened with China. They, they opened up their economy. They started allowing people to have private property. They started actually really looking at contracts and respecting that and, and trade, encouraging trade. And that means they, they turned around and started being a booming, productive uh, economic powerhouse. And they, they utilized their relatively low living standards to, you know, quote, import jobs. That's not really the right way to look at it because it's not like the U.S. or other rich economies have jobs. You know, as a society, we don't have jobs to export. Jobs are where, you, you know, entrepreneurs decide, do they need to hire somebody? Yeah. But lots of poor economies, which China was, if they're not making much money, they can improve a lot by just saying, well, let's get these people to work and actually paying them a little bit more. And if they're productive, they can compete. Yeah. And that's part of what happened. Now, your question about did their debt uh, you know, their increased use of debt helped them. Yeah, absolutely. De- debt will, it's a leverage, which means you can actually do more and produce more with having some debt. It's just a question of whether you're going to pay it back. The big issue with China is not necessarily their debt problems, so that is a looming problem from what I could tell. 
The big issue right now is they're going backwards in terms of that economic freedom. They're clamping down on their economy quite a bit more over the last two years. We saw that in, in Hong Kong, certainly. And Hong Kong used to be much, much freer than it is now. So China is going backwards in terms of its protection of property rights, uh, allowing people to be free in terms of trade. They're doing a lot more re-regulation of their economy, and that's certainly in their technology sector. And that's affecting stock prices over there, and that will have some impact worldwide as well as in the U.S. Because we're, we're now in a global economy, uh, if ever we have been, and the stock markets are interconnected. So if something happens in the U.S., it's going to affect, affect China and the rest of the world. And same thing, if something happens in, in China or other large economies, that's going to affect our economy. Well, so is that swaying you away from investing directly in China? Because I feel over, I don't know, the last five years, it seemed like everyone was starting to say, okay, China kind of went from almost like an emerging market type investment to, oh, no, this is just, this is like an international company. This is this is a good opportunity for, for investors. Is it now retroacting and kind of jumping back to oh yeah no, kind that's of like you said emerging market that's a frontier market maybe that's not the best well it's not it's not anymore. like going to some of the the really backwater places in the world that don't have any kind of infrastructure or or legal protections for property rights but they are moving the wrong direction and that's having that is going to have an impact the other issue though that comes about is and i would say this is a more broad you know, again, not a recommendation at all, but a more broad observation, not just about China, but, you know, quote, the emerging markets. They're, for the same kind of productivity, their pricing or their valuations are much lower. And so the U.S. is just a very expensive place, both to live and to trade and to buy good quality companies. And there's a lot of great quality companies that are in the emerging markets that will probably do well over the next 10 or 20 years that are cheap compared to the U.S. And so that, that's a theme. And I think most market observers see that as an opportunity to say, well, maybe I should be allocating more of my risk capital to more of the emerging markets versus having them in the established U.S. and, and uh, Western European markets. Although Western Europe is actually cheap, quite a bit cheaper than the U.S. as well. Western Europe investments because of their inflationary practices or what do you mean by they're quite a bit cheaper? Well, what's happened over the last the last 20 years have been volatile with all kinds of geopolitical events, you know, starting with, say, 9-11, with attacks in, in the U.S. and then and the wars and all the, leading all the way up to the, the current pandemic. There's been lots of, you know, large-scale uh, issues that threaten stability, threaten global stability. But whenever you've had that, People go to the safest place, you know, go yeah, to the safe harbor. Yeah, and the, the U.S. has probably rightly been perceived as the safest place for capital. We've had a long track record of respecting contracts, property rights, that kind of legal infrastructure that says, no, you have to deliver on what you say you're going to. And if you don't, if you're lying and cheating, you're going to go to jail, or you're going to be penalized rather than be part of the state itself. You know, lying and cheating used to be part of the state of every other country. The world is moving more to more transparency generally, although like like I said, you know, we're starting to see more and more of the world go back to a, an authoritarian kind of cronyist type of environment. But the US has had a track record of being the safest place for capital and trading and to protect yourself, whether it's investing in US dollars or US government debts 
or corporate debts or corporate stocks, we've been the safest. And that perception has been prevalent for the last 10 years. And people have bid up prices of our real estate, prices of our companies, because they're perceived to be a better protector of their capital. But whenever you have that bidding go on, you can have people go too far and bid too much for your house or for your stock and not pay attention to a neighbor's house or not pay attention to someone across the world's house or someone across the world's stock. And that's what's going on right now. The emerging markets, and again, this is true of Western Europe as well. They're not nearly valued as highly as the U.S. And some people might say that's, that's, you know, that's as it should be. The U.S. is still much better at protecting capital or protecting rights. So that's likely a good value investment then because they haven't been priced up. You mean, you mean the, likely, the emerging markets in, in Western Europe? Yeah. Or so they're either a good value investment right now or we're just way overvalued. Or both. It's time to sell. Or both. Or both, right? A lot of times it's a, a question of what do you have? as the options on the table. And so that's part of what we try to do is help people make that, make that decision. Now, if we go down to, to the COVID, that has had an interesting impact on worldwide economies because of the shutdowns. Whenever you, because we have had interventions and people could argue that those were necessary. Lots of people say, no, they weren't necessary. It was way overreacted. I find myself in that camp. Our government way overreacted to the pandemic and the virus itself. And we didn't need to have the same kind of shutdowns of economic activity. And that's created all kinds of distortions in supply chains. People don't, businesses were not able to really keep up with the actions of governments about, okay, what will happen to my business demand, whether it's on the plus or downside. And now, now that people are kind of getting the sense, okay, we're going to survive this pandemic and business will you know, go back to somewhat normal. There's all kinds of supplies out there that aren't really being delivered the way they should be. And that affects markets in a big way as well. And that, that can cause volatility. So if we have Delta variants, more shutdowns, more problems, more concern about the destruction that the virus can have, that will definitely be more deflationary, at least in the short term, from a business side. Although we're, we continue to pump money into the economy, so it'll be inflationary. And that goes back to that debate. Do you feel that the impact on border closing has had a large, I don't know, I, I feel while I was on my honeymoon, we had some experiences where I noticed there were markets that had been kind of cut off due to COVID. And I'm wondering what the long-term impact on that is going to be. Like Tahitian pearls, they weren't allowed to let in people from China to those islands. So I'm wondering, so the people who were helping create the pearls couldn't come in to help create them. So supply is obviously going to be down. So I assume costs will be up. But then just the concept of, okay, who can travel in and out of what different countries from a global perspective seemed to be really minimized. Like I, we spoke with a couple who they couldn't fly from Europe to America to overseas because they weren't allowed in America because we weren't allowing in Europeans. So how are we impacting multiple markets? Like how, I don't know, I guess. Well, I think you're right. I mean, that, that's, that is distorting. The limitations on people moving. It's distorting things. And, and, and it really is, I mean, people complain about the inequality problems that we have in the world. Although I think people have the wrong view of what you know, inequality means and what it's, what it's really about. But if you think about it, you know, those people who could stay at home, they had access to technology, they had you know, high-speed internet, broadband, and they could have their dinner delivered home. And they're actually thriving. The people who are fairly wealthy have done even better 
during the pandemic. Yeah. But people who didn't, you know, at the lower end, who, you know, their their job was to go out in the world and produce. They couldn't actually sit home or in an office space. They couldn't isolate. They had to actually go out and produce things. They were cut off and they don't maybe don't have the same access to to be able to to thrive with technology that that uh, we've seen during this. So that's exacerbated sort of the, some of the inequality issues that we have. Lots of jobs have now been displaced by, you know, a, maybe even a front loading of some of the digitization and technology. Those people who don't have financial assets are not able to take advantage of that. And Do so, you think we'll have a comeback of all that, though? So all the people who needed to physically be present for those jobs that maybe couldn't commute for them or couldn't come from out of state or even just commute out of their house because they needed to stay in place and be safe. Do you feel that now we're going to find, we're going to go from a, a lack of employees to a surplus of employees in the next year or two once things reopen? Is it going to be well, a here, market where people can't find jobs because there's too many people and not enough jobs? So I don't know, right? Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea how it'll shake out. I, I do. Uh, my thinking is based upon my philosophy that the sooner we get to less intervention, the more markets equalize. They, they, they work themselves out. You have supply and demand issues where they, you know, people, if people are making a lot of money in a certain area, then the solution to that is to have more competition come in and that will end up lowering the prices and again, make quality go up. And, but we don't have that right now. So my thinking is that we're going to still have shortages. And the scenario when I was growing up, you, this is way before your time, but the scenario that when I was growing up that really looks like today is sort of a stagflationary time period where we don't get the growth and the accelerated financial activity, but we do get price increases. And that's the worst, you know, one of the worst scenarios you could have is where you have lots of, especially basic costs, fuel, food, electricity, those kinds of things going up because that really hurts people at the bottom. But if they don't have either the incentives or the jobs aren't there, then that hurts them even more. And so we don't get the growth either. We don't get innovation and growth. So that's stagflation is the term in the 70s. And that's what it looks like we're kind of entering into. Again, I don't know if that's what it'll turn out. But I do think if we are headed that direction, there are certain things that a person can do in their portfolio. And we've talked about those and we'll talk about those uh, throughout the rest of this year. So what about taxes? Not to kind of jump out, but what about what I mean, what are your thoughts going into year end and this new the new bills that they're proposing? And well, you might imagine that I thought before COVID, our governments were spending way too much. Well beyond the proper scope of their role. Well beyond. So to me it's on steroids right now. And uh, that was true under Trump, and that's gotten even worse under Biden. We, we are just uh, drunken sailors. There's no one who's talking about fiscal discipline anymore. And so these tax packages, now th- you can make an argument that there are certain parts of our infrastructure, real infrastructure, not all the things that they're calling infrastructure right now, but real infrastructure, you know, bridges, highways, airports, uh, docks, those kinds of things are in disrepair and need, need some investment. I think the private sector would do a lot better job of, of investing in that. You'd have, you need that incentive mechanism, the price system, information coming across clearly about what people's values are. And you don't have that when you have the government printing and distributing money. So I absolutely believe that our legislators should fight these, these spending bills. It's, it's, it's really going to be disastrous for future generations. And it will clamp down on the kind of innovation that we've had in this country that has made us sort of the gold standard of, of gro- a growing, thriving economy. Um, we, we need to have continued innovation and productivity to, to be that kind of a society. And with these kinds of tax packages where we just 
where we're talking about not just billions, but trillions, multiple trillions, uh, it's going to be very dangerous and destructive. So I don't know about any of the other millennials listening, but I, I probably don't know as much as I should about this tax bill. I'm just going to be honest. So is it mostly directed towards infrastructure spending? It depends on what you count. I mean, and they're changing the language, uh, which I think is a very dangerous thing as well. But if you, when you start saying that, well, we need more, more dollars to go to public schools, is that infrastructure? That's not traditionally infrastructure. No, you could say that's a good investment. A person could make that's a good uh, societal collective uh, investment that we need to make. I reject that, but I, I, you can make that debate. But if you start saying that's infrastructure, which you know, infrastructure traditionally meant hard assets, you know, bridges, highways, airports, places that facilitated the free movement of capital goods and labor. I've seen best estimates that maybe a third of what they're talking about spending would actually go to those things. And they're not going to go efficiently either. They're going to go to cronies and people, you know, certain companies that are better lobbyists. It won't be a free market situation that would be much more efficient. But but then you have two-thirds of it that's like, we're calling that infrastructure, but, but it's not really. It's, it's not infrastructure. It's it's more okay. it's more cronyism and, and that's the danger of of having that kind of spending because it's gonna be very wasteful and misdirected capital. Destruction of capital. So that's a little bit of you know my thinking right now on the way the markets are going what's impacting the markets. Again, I, you know, anyone who bets against the U.S. market is usually making a mistake. We are tremendously adaptive as a society, adaptive as a, as a business culture, and that's a reason to be optimistic. And we have seen lots of cases over the last 20 or 30 years where you thought, oh, we're going the wrong direction, but some pocket of our economy kind of pulled us out. Lately, it's been the technology and biotech and things like that. So, you have to balance it out. You have to balance it out, you know, whether we're, we're going down a really bad path or whether we will see uh, that same sort of American entrepreneurial spirit uh, pull us out. Hopefully. Thanks, Mike, so much for really diving into that and kind of clarifying some of what's really going on in our local economy and, and the economy across the world. I really appreciate all the, all the clarity you provided. <laughs> I'm not sure it's been that clear. I mean, I, I know we've, we're bringing up lots of issues and want to make sure our clients and, and listeners are just aware these are the kinds of, the, of things that we think about that do have some impact on the market. And we're here for you to be able to trust and know that we're analyzing your particular situation if you're a client of ours. And if you're not, we'd be happy to talk to you. These are real issues that are affecting client portfolios and, and the security of, of everyone who is a market participant. And if any of our listeners do have specific questions on any of these topics or other economic-related topics, do feel free to reach out to us. Send us those questions. We'll get back to you. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a, have a wonderful weekend and capitalize your Fridays.